Paul, one of the, the things that uh, I, I thought was interesting about about your own background is sometimes you get, I think, musicians who are sort of running away from where they came from, you know, that uh, Bob Dylan talks about how he was born in the wrong place to the wrong family and things like that. While when I look at the type of music you did, you do, and that you've done, like, research as a folklorist, it's a lot of it has to do with, I think, Indiana, where you're from. Uh, tell, tell us maybe a little bit about the place where you came from. Well, I grew up in a little town, about 500 people outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana. The town was called Hoagland. But actually, the, the community that, that uh, was there was an old German farm community. that My mother was, she spoke German, and she was fourth generation. Um, I, didn't, I don't speak a word of German because there was something that happened that uh, kind of got in the way, which was that war between <laughs> the United States and Germany. And so they dropped all the German. And, about, uh, and I'm one of those post-war babies. They didn't bring it back. But the interesting thing that always got me going was in my hometown, there was a dance hall. It was an old converted barn. It was called the Hoagland Hayloft. And in the 1940s, there was a big square dance revival in this country. And so some, this farmer named Herb Rietdorf, one of those old German guys, he uh, converted his barn into a dance hall and uh, made money, more money off of that than he would make by, by stocking it full of uh, from grain from the fields. So the, the hayloft was a great place. And whenever there was a wedding in the community, they had a band. And they had the reception at the uh, Hoagland Hayloft upstairs in this old bank barn. And they'd play slow dances and the old folks would get out on the floor and dance, you know, they'd hold each other. And then they'd play fast dances. That's what we called them, slow dances and fast dances. We didn't have any other labels for stuff. And fast dances was all the young people would get up and boogie. So, but there was one thing that got everybody on the floor of all ages, and that was square dances. So that I thought when I was 10 years old, I get started square dancing, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And, but there were two things that puzzled me. One was why all these old German people loved square dancing so much, because it was not a German thing, I thought at that time. And the other thing is, is all the bands that played for it, none of them had a fiddle player. And I knew enough that a square dance band should have a fiddle player. So when I got a little older and, and more curious, I went looking for both answers to both questions. Where were the fiddle players? And why were these German people doing square dancing? And I found the answer to the first question. Fiddle players were all over. They just weren't getting hired anymore. <laughs> the answer to why the Germans square dance, I'm still not sure other than Square dancing had spread to Germany before these people actually came to the United States. It was known as the quadrille. And it spread from, from where? It, it's, square dance actually started in, in France, but it was an answer to an English style of dancing called the contra dance or country dance. And the, and the English did it in long lines. So that was contra dance anglaise. And then the French came up with doing it in square formation for couples, and that was the Le Contredance Francaise, otherwise known as the quadrille. <laughs> so, well, what, what was the setup? They weren't using fiddles, what were they? Electric guitars, saxophones, big accordions. Square I mean, dancing? big accordions. I've never seen accordions so big. <laughs> yeah, 
Because well, they had to play everything. They had to play slow dances. They had to play fast dances. So they. But there were some fiddlers around. Could you give an example of what what they would have done had they had fiddle? What what type of uh, song? What, what was well, the song you were inclined? What would you be most likely to hear? Well, I'll give you a couple of a medley of a couple of tunes okay. here from from an Indiana fiddler from the other part other uh, end of the state. I was from northern Indiana. This fiddle player was from southern Indiana, and I learned a lot from him. But he was the best square dance fiddler I me ever met in that state. So this is a tune uh, called. Porter, followed by Billy in the low ground. Uh, his name was Lotus Dickey. I met him after I'd been playing the fiddle about 10 years or so, and I met Lotus. I was living in the southern part of the state at that time and going to grad school in Bloomington, and, and uh, <clears throat> Lotus lived in Paoli, which is just a couple of counties south of Bloomington. And, and we, uh, a whole bunch of people got to know him, but he was also a songwriter, and so some of, a bunch of other people were really into his songs. But I was into his fiddle playing, so he spent a lot of time with me and taught me a lot of tunes. And I took him around, and we played shows at schools all over the state. And 
And um, I spent about eight years with Lotus and learned a, an awful lot about life and, and work and music and all sorts of things. He was a, quite a man, probably as, as important to me as my parents ever had been. And how did you first meet him? What was the situation where this college kid goes and finds old-time Well, several player? other grad students in folklore had run into him, and uh, they were all sort of fighting about him. <laughs> who, who, uh, who owned him, you know, who discovered him. And like I said, they were all interested in his songs. And, and I was at the time working uh, uh, for the Indiana Fiddlers Gathering. It's a nice little festival that's coming up at the end of this month. It's gonna, I think it's in its 44th year now. But this would have been about 1981. And I was uh, hired to, uh, to book all the old guys for the festival. Another guy was hired to book all the young musicians. And I was hired to go get the old guys. And I, uh, I got a bunch of old guys. And, and then one of the, the guy who hired me said, well, you, I just met this man named Lotus Dickey. You've got to bring him to the festival. I said, well, I spent my budget. He said, don't worry about your budget, hire him. So I called him up. At, the, at that point, he didn't have a phone. In fact, he never had a phone because he couldn't keep a phone bill paid. But um, his brother up the, the road from him had a phone. So I called his brother and his brother sent a message and said, he'll be up here at a certain time. So I went and called him and, and uh, at that certain time, he said, well, Lotus, love to have you come and play this festival up in Battleground, Indiana. And he said, well, how am I going to get there? <laughs> and well, we've arranged a ride for him and brought him up there. And I met him at the festival. And that was in 1981. And he, he was in, from that point on, my, probably my closest friend until his death in 1989 when he was in his 70s. And uh, like I said, he, he liked to fiddle. He liked to write songs. He was friends with everybody. But he and I had a special thing about how to fiddle. What? What, what was his, what was the rest of his life like when he wasn't playing fiddle? What, what was he doing? At, at that point, he was retired. He had um, eight kids. He got married when he was uh, 32, and his wife was 16. And they had eight kids. And when the eight, after the eighth kid was born, she left him and said, I've had enough of this. <laughs> And he raised those kids, and he was a he was a working man. He was belonged to the labor union, and he worked. Well, he'd worked factories. He'd done farming. He did a lot of construction. He worked in a basket factory. He worked in the ammunition factory, but mostly he worked construction. And he would go everywhere, and he hitchhiked to work. He'd get rides, and he'd hitchhike home. And the kids took care of each other, and then he'd come home and take care of everybody. And um, some, somewhere in that whole time, he, took, he hitchhiked down to, to Nashville, Tennessee twice. Once to try to get on the Grand Ole Opry, and he buttonholed the, the head of the Grand Ole Opry in a, in, a, in a stairwell and had an audition in a stairwell, and he had his fiddle with him. And they said, well, thank you, Mr. Dickey. We'll let you know if we need you. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Second time he went down there, he had a bunch of songs that he'd written, and he, he was looking for a publisher and he found the Wilburn brothers who were still active in Nashville and they they bought about four of his songs and one of them was was recorded totally no name song no name singer but he did he did manage to uh, uh, record he kept thinking that because he was a good songwriter that he could somehow get out of 
you know, out of the, the, the hard scrabble life he was in, if he could just sell a couple songs. And he did that all his life. His kids would say he'd come home from work and he'd, you know, he'd, been, he'd, he'd had to hitchhike to work and he'd work hard all day. He'd come home and he'd write a song and the kids would all be in bed and he'd get the song done about two in the morning and then he said they'd come up and he'd come upstairs and wake him up and say, how's this sound? <laughs> it sounds fine, Pap. Go to, go to bed. We want to go to sleep. <laughs> but he finally made his mark in music when he was retired and the, the folk music community discovered him and he played everywhere then he he played at the Kennedy Center in Washington DC he played at festivals on the on the West Coast at Festival of American Fiddle Tunes and all he played everywhere and, and how was it that you decided this was going to be something you were going to do how did you pick up the fiddle in the first in the first place you well, mentioned that the music was around you to some degree but I picked up the fiddle because um, I wanted I mean I knew I wanted to play fiddle I wanted to play square dance music as a kid that's what I wanted to be I wanted to be in the band that played at weddings so it got people dancing I wanted to be a, that was my goal in life just be in a wedding band <laughs> and have you, have you done some weddings I've done quite a few I've done a several with that man over there Mr. Dvorak <laughs> and um but it was a long, long winding road because then I went away to college and when I went away to college I, I was playing guitar but I wasn't playing fiddle and you know I went from from singer-songwriter folk music to traditional folk music right after college and I knew I wanted to play the fiddle and I bought a f couple fiddle records and tried to learn but my god were they fast. <laughs> I couldn't make heads or tails of them so so I did I did a lot of songs and eventually I, I started to fiddle again and and I found some other people who were into old-time music and were about my, my level at that point, which was pretty rough. And we started playing together. And I'd, when I'd been playing about maybe three months, four months, I got a job to play for a square dance. And at that point, I was playing in bars in Detroit and uh, making 15 bucks a night. And s some people said, we, we want to have a square dance at our school. This was the Bicentennial, 1976. It was 40 years ago this year. There's a lot of ex excitement about historical stuff. And so this private school in Detroit, they said, we want to have a square dance. And we can't find a fiddle player. And I said, well, how much does it pay? And they said, well, 100 bucks. And I said, I can play the fiddle. <laughs> so I put a band together, and, and we got 100 bucks a piece for a four-piece band. That was the biggest money I'd made at that point in the 1970s. And uh, and I I just started to play. Can you give an example of what the square dance music would would sound like that you were playing at that time? At that time, let's see. Thank you. 
That was a tune called Over the Waterfall that, that my whole generation back in the 70s, all us young bucks, we learned that from uh, uh, Alan Jabor, who became the head of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. But he would have been a fiddle player who had learned from old fiddlers in Virginia. And he got that tune from Henry Reed in Virginia. Now supposedly that tune goes way back to uh, the early 1800s. Henry Reed had learned it from an old man who was born in the early 1800s. So it's, you know, it was a kind of a rescued tune. If it hadn't been for Alan Jabor, that tune would have been forgotten. Now everybody plays it. So that's a, that's a good thing. How, I know that was, um, or that's been something as part of folk music, is kind of tracking down the older players and finding out what they knew. How did, how did you find most of them reacted to you when you would come out to try to talk to them, to learn from them? Well, I, they were, they were, uh, they were great. It was, uh, they'd been largely forgotten. They'd been forgotten. The fiddle had been really big in the 1930s and 40s and, in, and earlier than that, especially in the 1920s. And then most fiddle players said that, uh, of the old generation said it was rock and roll that killed it. So a lot of them quit playing during the 50s or the music changed and they just didn't want to do the, the newer music. And, uh, but there were still many old guys around that had played as young men. Some of them had picked it up again in the 60s and 70s. And the folk revival was having an impact. Like I said, Alan Jabor was one of those guys. And, and then the Fuzzy Mountain String Band out of North Carolina, they were also going out and just finding old country fiddlers and learning their tunes and putting them on records. Not putting the fiddlers themselves, they were recording the tunes on recordings. And that was sort of the model I wanted to do. And I met a guy when I lived in Detroit named Paul Gifford, who was learning old tunes all over Michigan. And I said, well, geez, I gotta do that. I gotta move back to my home state of Indiana and do that. So I moved back and um, I had bad luck the first night I went out. I had borrowed a tape recorder, and um, I had been a judge at a fiddle contest at the local 4-H fair the summer before, and I got the names of all the contestants, and then I started to visit them, and a couple of them lived, like, within five or six miles of where I grew up, and the first one I went to, my mom had known him, and, and he'd been in a band back in the 40s when they were all young, and I went there, and I recorded him, and I had this tape recorder, and I couldn't figure out, it had a microphone attached to the tape recorder, it was on a cord, but I couldn't figure out how to get it off of the, micro, off of the tape recorder and move it over closer to him, so I just set the tape recorder right there. And um, it was, by the way, it was a Ewer tape recorder, it was a really good one, it's the kind that Studs Terkel used. Studs swore by Ewer tape recorders. But I didn't know how to use the damn thing. And so all my recordings, had the, the, the motor of the tape recorder out. <laughs> that was what you could hear. You barely hear any of the music. And this guy just started playing. We talked a while, and he just started playing, and then his wife came in and said, our son's got 102, 103 fever. We got to get him to the hospital. So that ended that session. So the next day, I went to find um, another old guy. I'll play you a tune from him in a little bit. His name was Francis Giles. And he, he became a big influence on me, too. I knew him over the course of about 30 years. And Francis was the uh, superintendent of the local cemetery. And so I went to find him in the cemetery office. 
and uh, he was wearing heavy mud boots because he'd just been digging a grave and he didn't have his fiddle with him but we talked a while and I have no idea. I'm sure he told me some great stuff in an interview, but you can't hear a word of it because all you can hear is the, the, the uh, sound of the tape recorder motor. But he told me his, his Uncle Joe had played. His Uncle Joe was a left-handed fiddle player. They'd had two bands. The, Francis's father played, and they had a family band. And then Francis's father's brother, Uncle Joe, played, and he had a family band, too. And, the, you know, this was back in the 30s, and they were, there was enough work for two family bands with, by the name of Giel's. In, in that area. So I went over to Joe Giel's house and his wife said, um, well, I'm sorry, he's not here. We just took him to the hospital. You, you come back when he's out of the hospital. Well, he didn't get out of the hospital. And so that was, my, that was my rough start. But when I started, then to Francis, I got, got back with a better tape recorder and I knew how to work it. And uh, he just, he was all set up. I told him I was coming over. He got his sisters to play with him, and they were all set up in the living room, and we set up the tape recorder, and they gave us a concert for like three hours. They just, tune after tune, and I, he let me ask questions and get information about the tune, but they just so much want, wanted the people who appreciated their tunes to be heard. There's nothing, you know, if you're open and you're not trying to make money and cheat them, they're... Uh, it's just this human connection, and they were so glad to be heard that someone is interested in their music. Uh, what was one of the tunes he played for you? Well, it was a tune I'd been looking for uh, that I'd heard up in Michigan. It was a tune called The Jumpin' Toothache. It was pretty unusual, and so I asked all these people if they knew The Jumpin' Toothache, and Francis Gill said, yeah, I know The Jumpin' Toothache, but I can't think of how it goes. <laughs> and he said, but... But this, this guy that lives over across the state line in Ohio, in Convoy, Ohio, he played it, and he used to date my sister. And well, I, ch I finally chased this guy down. His name was Harold Zimmerman, and he'd moved away from Convoy, Ohio, and was living in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, right across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. And I drove down there, and I found Harold Zimmerman, and, and Harold played the jumping toothache for me, and I went back and played it for Francis Giles, and then Francis Giles started playing it at fiddle contests. <laughs> So, you know, I helped, he, he liked that. I helped him remember a tune he hadn't had remembered in years. This one, you need to get your video cameras out. This one's got visuals. So, uh, yeah.
So did he do the tricks when he showed it to you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, those are those are all bona fide jumping toothache tricks. <laughs> They're traditional. <laughs> you know, when sometimes when you hear about the people that are like say looking for the old blues musicians, there'd be these guys. Oh, I don't play that music anymore. I'm in the church, things like that. Did, were there people that had given it up, or do they usually keep it around and just play it here and there? What, how often were these older musicians still playing the old songs? Well, most of them were still playing or had given it up while they were working and raising a family and then took it up again in their older years. I ran into a couple, and I don't even remember who they were, that said, oh, no, I, 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 I quit playing because of religion. Um, I, several of the guys that I knew played their fiddles in church. They were religious, but they played the square dance on Saturday night, and they'd play in, in church on Sunday. Uh, one, one guy said that he started, he and his brother started playing as, as kids, and they played old-time music, he played a lot of fiddle tunes, but he said, their mom said, now, Donald, I just hope that you never play for a dance, because those dancers, they're a rough bunch, and we brought you up to be a good Christian, and you need to stay away from people like that. And so he said, and I've never played for a dance. <laughs> and he was proud of it, but he played... He could have, because he was good. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there, you know, there's all, there's all types, all types out there. But I, I'd say that most of the rural uh, churches in the in the area where I was going to, there wasn't, a, it wasn't the same brand of uh, religion that would have said you got to quit. Mm -hmm. So, so, so you've kind of we're doing this at the same time. You're playing music and working as a folklorist at the same time. Well, or? I started doing the collecting. And um, I was not in school. I, I, I was between my undergrad years and my graduate school, and I thought I was never going to go back to school, but I was doing this music thing. I was an amateur, and I got the chance to do a radio show on a public station in Fort Wayne. And I, so I was doing that show, and there was a brand-new station, and they were, they were all keen on getting grants. And they said, well, what? let's write a grant. What would you like to do? And I said, I want to go out and record musicians and make my radio shows out of the field recordings. And I said, okay, let's get a grant. So my first two grant proposals I wrote got funded. And I was totally untrained, un uncredentialed. I was just well-placed. And, and I wanted it. And so for, I had a year or so where I was living high on the hog. I was paid to go out and travel around and record music and come back to the radio station and make shows out of it. I made 26 one-hour programs called Indiana Hoedown. And I'm actually hoping to get them put back on the air sometime this year. They've, I made them back in 1979 and 80, and they haven't been heard since. And this year is the bicentennial of the state of Indiana, so we're looking for a way to get them back on the air. And, uh, but that was, that was uh, how I, I started. And when that year was up, it was a year of, of my grants, and I was suddenly left with nothing to do. And, and uh, it had been a tough year, but it had been a great year. But uh, I also lost my mother in the course of that year. And I went in, I'd gotten support from the Archives of Traditional Music down at Indiana University in Bloomington. There was a wonderful man who directed the archives. And I went in, he said, we'll supply you tape, and we'll give you some, some uh, laboratory space so you can do some dubbing down here. 
and he wrote a letter of support. And he was just the wonder, most wonderful guy. And I went in to see him when the grant was over, and I was pretty lost. And I said, Mr. Gillis, what should I do? And he said, you should go to school. Get your master's in folklore. And I said, okay. So I did. <laughs> and just, just because he did, said so. And I, I kind of got into it. I was only going to get a master's, but I stayed around and got a Ph.D. And while I was doing that, I was uh, supporting myself by doing contract work as a folklorist. I worked for a number of agencies doing research projects on folk art, mostly on folk music because I was seen as a specialist in that. The farthest away I went was Wyoming, but most of, my, most of the work I did was uh, either in Indiana or in Illinois. What, what would you say are some of the things that make Midwestern old-time music different than, you know, say, the, you know, from other parts of the United States? Well, what's distinctive about Midwestern fiddle music in particular is that it's the same as everything else. It's just all of it. This is a crossroads. So you get southern styles, you get northern styles, you get, you get mid-Atlantic styles, you get Scandinavian styles, and sometimes they're all kind of mished together in, in a person's repertory. And some, but it's all here. It's all here. The Midwest is just a, a crossroads, and everything you want to find is here. I, I, there are some things I could say are kind of typical Midwestern, but that wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to push the point too far because you find a little bit of everything here. But uh, some of the older Midwestern stuff is, I don't know, I'd, I'd say that it, it, what's distinctive about it is it's kind of square, and I say that with all fondness. It's, that's, it's just really square and straightforward and, and honest music and, and the fiddle music is like that and the folk songs you get the same songs you get and that you get in other parts of the country you get a great mixture with pop music and country music and polka music is part of the blend too that's another thing about the Midwest is you can't necessarily tell where country music stops and polka music starts. <laughs> in some cases you can, but there's an area, there's a big, big area where it's, it's very, very gray. What, could you play an example of something that, you know, a Midwestern musician might be especially inclined to know or enjoy? Ah. Uh, Judy, come on up here. <laughs> Steve, get that guitar. <laughs> Get that guitar. That guitar right there. We're gonna. One thing that's uh, that a lot of Midwestern players play that uh, that you don't hear in in other other uh, fiddle traditions, particularly in the South, is tunes in six eight time, and they don't call them jigs because they're not like Irish jigs at all. They're old square dance pieces, and most fiddlers would call them quadrilles. Now a quadrille is a square dance. You could dance, you could dance them to tunes in six eight, or you could dance them to tunes in two four. But for some reason, the fiddle players call the ones in six eight quadrilles. And we're going to do one that I learned from a guy named Clay Smith. He was better known as Pete, from Star City, Indiana. Well, he grew up in Logansport, and he learned a lot of his tunes from an old man in Logansport, probably at the uh, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, an old man named Charlie Dunn. So this is Pete Smith's version of Charlie Dunn's. This is our version of Pete Smith's version of Charlie Dunn's F and C quadrille. That was F, the key of F. F and C, not F and C. <laughs> okay. All right. One, two, three. 
I think we're not. Yeah. This is Judy Higgins on fiddle and Steve Rosen on guitar. Don't go far, guys. You'll be back up here in a second. Steve is my uh, longtime teaching partner at the Old Time Ensemble here at the Old Town School of Folk Music, or there at the Old Town School of Folk Music. And Judy's been my student, and for the last two years, she was my apprentice, thanks to the Illinois Arts Council. So she learned a lot of the tunes that I learned from those old guys back in Indiana and some other states around here. Well, how, how did you end up around here uh, from Indiana? Well, like, I was getting work up in the Chicago area, being a freelancer, and I had a lot of music friends up here, so... Uh, I don't know, it was a really stupid thing to do, but I, I left Bloomington, which is my favorite city in the world, and came to Chicago, and uh, didn't think I'd stay, but I've been here 30 years now. I like Chicago. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just came here because there was, there, was, uh, there, there was music and there was freelance work to do. Freelance work playing or as a folklorist? As a folklorist and playing. So what were, what were you doing here as a folklorist? I worked uh, for a bunch of times for the Adler Cultural Center out in Libertyville when they had a big folk music program. I did field work for them. I did some, um, helped uh, curate some concert series of, it's called uh, In the Tradition or Masters of the Tradition, uh, where I would write program notes for an old performer and they'd come and do a concert on videotape and I'd do a video interview with them and it became a cable community access cable TV show back in the days when there was community access and uh, I worked for Hull House the Beacon Street Gallery when it was over in Hull House I uh, I don't know I did a couple of a few other things like that I worked for Eastern Illinois University a couple of times I worked for a group here called Urban Traditions which is now no longer here but that was in partnership with Southern Illinois University but I was living here at the time that I did that work and were there musicians in Chicago itself? Were there old-time musicians around? Yeah, I usually found out about them when they were gone. There were old-time musicians of my generation, and I learned a lot from them, too. I didn't study them like a folklorist. We just played tunes and had a good time. Who are some of the folks you like playing with when you, in your first few years here? Well, my oldest friend in Chicago is Steve Rosen sitting over there. <laughs> Come on, let's hear it. <laughs> How'd you two meet? I don't know. Uh, jail? <laughs> <laughs> Probably through the, through the, the dance scene, the mm -hmm. contra dance, square dance scene. Uh, Lynn... Smith, Chirp Smith, who's a great fiddle player, part of that whole circle, and I actually had met him before I moved up here. And Fred Campo, another great fiddle player, banjo player, and uh, uh, those names, along with Tony Scarambolo and Jim Nelson, um, that's giving you the whole lineup of a band called the Volo Bogtrotters. That's, that's been around since the middle 80s, and I've been a part of that band since 1993, I think. Maybe 92. I can't remember. Could, could you and Steve give us a, a, an example of something that you would play, a scaled-down version? Get your banjo. Let's do something. <laughs> 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 
of down. We can make a wall of sound with just two. <laughs> You're in D? Dickie's discovery. You're in Chicago, you're playing with various groups. When did you get associated with the Old Town School? Uh, 1988. Right after 
the Armitage building had been rehabbed. Well, actually, I was doing a couple workshops for the kids' field trips when I first moved here. So I almost immediately on moving to the city, I, I did a couple things. But I, I got hired to, to set up the Resource Center back in 1988 when we moved back into uh, uh, the rehab building on Armitage. And I, I was on staff for five years, and, and uh, they decided they didn't have room for a Resource Center anymore, so that got shut down, and I stayed on as a teacher. And uh, they haven't gotten rid of me yet. <laughs> what were some of the things you were putting together in the resource center? Um, well, we did. We also did some exhibits. That was kind of fun. I did an exhibit with all the banjos there, and did a history of the banjo exhibit, and showed how it came from from African sources to the because the old town school has this collection of Stuart banjos, really vintage banjos from the late 1800s. But I used those and, and put together an exhibit that told the, a bigger story than that. And uh, we did some uh, exhibits on, um, on Native American folk art. We did one on Guatemalan weaving and one on, on contemporary and traditional American Indian art. And then you know, we kind of lost uh, the space for that stuff and um, that, that all went into, it really wasn't the main mission of the school. We needed rooms for teaching. <laughs> so. Yeah. Which which classes do you usually teach? I teach um, fiddle classes, um, and uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I tell everybody with utmost confidence that I was the first group fiddle teacher the Old Town School ever had. They had some private instructors, but yeah. and and Steve is the second, Steve Rosen, right. And we built it up from, from uh, the first fiddle class we had was just called Fiddle. <laughs> and the first time I offered it, there was about a half dozen or so people in the room, and three of them had been playing for 10 years, and three of them had never touched it before. Awesome. It was a challenge. But we, we, we started, we kept at it, and after a few sessions, uh, and Steve came on board, we would have beginning fiddle and intermediate fiddle, and we'd kind of rotate that. And then we, we've, we've grown it up to, over the years, to it didn't take long. But we grew it up to four levels of fiddle plus a bunch of specialty classes. And I teach, Steve and I teach the old time ensemble. I teach a class called the Vintage Country Ensemble, which is like old time ensemble except it does more singing and less instrumental stuff. But um, yeah, I used to teach guitar classes, but I don't do that anymore. I'm a specialist. <laughs> I've noticed one of the other things you also do is the Fiddle Club of, of the World. Yeah. What, what does the Fiddle Club of the World do? How often do you guys meet, and how did that come together in the first place? Oh, well, it's kind of this thing, being a folklorist, and, and I, besides doing old-time music, collecting old-time music, I did a lot of documentation of, of other ethnic uh, musics and, and uh, music communities and... and um, and, and also art communities, and I just have always appreciated how people use music and other art forms to express who they are, to express something about their, their, their background, their history, their families, the values that they have, and, and uh, you know, I just found that, that other people do the same thing that I've always done, which is hold, hold these things dear and, and try to, to do them well and to do them in ways that get people together to have a good time and, and break down barriers. And other communities do that, but their music is different. 
and their their art is different, but it speaks to them. And so I just thought that I wanted to find some common ground, not so that we'd all necessarily be able to play like each other, but we could find build some understanding. You know, hey, this is how I, this is the music that I love, and here's the music that, that you love, and let's, you know, let's be friends because of that. And that's what's happened. It works. We get we get musicians that come here. Chicago's a fabulous place to be. There's people coming here from all over the world for various reasons, and and we're well situated. So I get a you know I get this call that some some musician from uh, some place like Denmark is going to be here, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he he's got a gig here and a gig there, but he needs another gig. And I said, well, I can't get him a lot of money, but I can get him a place to play and some people to come and listen. So we. We do now our Fiddle Club of the World meetings about six or seven a year up at Seaman Violins in Skokie in his recital hall back there. It's, it holds about 40 people. It's a lovely room, great acoustics. And these artists will come in and, um, and give a little concert. No sound system is needed, and the audience is really close, and they can ask questions. And then we, fo- then we follow that up with a workshop or jam session or a combination of both. So we get to play together. So you get to see, we fiddle club people get to see really fabulous musicians from all parts of the world and up close and then sit and play tunes with them. And it's a really powerful experience. We've had fiddlers visit us, fiddlers or musicians. We don't just do fiddle, we do some other, we've, we've even had banjo. <laughs> and we've even had accordion. Oh, yeah. And we've uh, had them from uh, musicians from 10 different countries, counting the United States. We've had musicians from 20 different states in the United States, and I counted it up as something like close to 20 different styles or ethnicities of music have been represented in uh, the nine years we've been doing this. Is there a, a style that, that you've kind of picked up and learned that's, that's, that's different than the old-time thing that you could show us a little bit of? Yeah, my, probably the closest thing to, the, to my heart uh, um, well, sort of two things, so I'm gonna do two numbers, all right? I'm gonna do one, it's a Finnish tune, because I have really close ties now to some of these musicians that have been here from Finland, particularly Arto Järvala, who some of you remember, and uh, he was in residence at the Old Town School for a month back in 2009, and lived at my house, and so now we're family. And, um, and my family has visited his family in Finland, and it's been just wonderful. He taught me a tune that he learned from an old guy in, in his part of Finland, which is Ostrobothnia. And they have their own style of playing there. And this is a wedding polka. It's called a, uh, not a polka, a polska. A wedding polska, and it's called the Raha polska, which means it's a money polska. And this is a traditional wedding in that part of Finland would have a whole suite of dances. It would last for about three or four days and there'd be a whole suite of tunes that you'd have to play in there for different parts of the wedding. And this is the one that you play when everybody comes and dances with the bride and gives them a, a cash gift to dance with them to help, help the, the new married couple get their uh, a stake in life. So this is a, a Raha Polska I learned from Arto Yervala who learned it from Erki Metzapelto. <laughs>
and any other the other style of music that uh, that I have fallen in love with and I'm, I'm not sure I have mastered it or even close to it but that's music from uh, from Mexico and a lot of it came from our friend Maria McCullough who used to be hanging out in this room a lot but she's moved to uh, New Mexico with her husband Yavi and Yav but Yavi and his family taught me a lot of uh, stuff and uh, Juan Rivera who is a fiddler in, a, in a, a band called Sones de Mexico became a good friend of mine and learned a lot of stuff from him and and then they bring musicians up from Mexico so we've met some of them and this this tune Judy Higgins and I are going to do is came from one of those we don't know exactly where but one of those groups that came up from Mexico I think a group from uh, from Michoacan uh, from uh, uh, the the, uh, the the group that's known as the Purepecha um, that's a Native American group and uh, this is a song I think from that tradition a lovely tradition don't know what the, what you'd call the tradition, uh, but it's called Jujete Consuileto. Pardon my mispronunciation. I'm doing my best I can. We'll try to play the tune better than that. I got the low part. Right? You got the low part. Okay. How's it go? One, two, three, four.
So if you like Danish music, we got a Danish group coming to Fiddle Club this uh, Thursday, in two days. And, and so you, with the Fiddle Club, what, what else? Do you do any more fol- folklore stuff in terms of actually going out and seeking out people at this point? Not so much. It's um, got a little... They come to you now. Yeah, they come to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm now the old guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm older now than Francis Giles was when I first started visiting him, and I thought he was so old. <laughs> what, what do you think was uh, so special about that type of relationship? You hear a lot about that, someone tracking down that older musician and, and getting to know each other while they're, you know, the young musician getting to know them. What, what makes that such a special relationship? Well, you know, there, there is kind of a, a, just a natural thing about, if you skip a generation, grandparents and kids, grandkids, I mean. So there's, there's this automatic little, there's, there's the, no tension of, uh, of, the, of the parent in between, and the grandparents are good. But then you, you add into that music, you know, and, and a, a, a kid learning music that has been a part of the old person's life is just such a, you know, you feel like, well, I get it now. It's like, yeah, this is not gonna, this is not gonna die. This is not gonna end. This is, there's, this is gonna carry on. What I've been devoted my life to is bigger than me, and that's a good thing. It's, it's gonna keep going. The, the other part of it from, that I feel particularly lucky about is the guys that I, learned from lived in a different world than I grew up in and I'm not sure that we have quite that anymore I mean uh, they, they, they the guys I learned from remember a time when they didn't have electricity in their homes and didn't have television or radios a neighbor might have a radio they may have had a they may have had a, a Victrola that played acoustically but not electrically and uh, You'd get some records and, and, and play them. But, you know, their world was quieter. It was simpler and quieter. Not that it was full of, wasn't full of its own heartaches and troubles and obstacles and problems, but it was quieter. We, my generation, and the kids after us, we are bombarded with stuff all the time. And, and we don't know how to take it in. We got so much stuff. They lived in a quieter time, and they could remember everything. They could hear it purely they could they didn't have a whole lot to to interfere i tell my fiddle students tonight if you you know uh, i do tell them a lot uh you know if you're if you're trying to get this tune in your head don't turn the radio on in your car when you go home leave here and sing it on the way home if you if you just think okay i'm going to learn it in class and i'm going to listen to music on the way home you're you're messing you're messing up the process some of the old guys told stories about going to a dance, you know, and they'd go, as a kid, they'd go to a dance and, and they'd sit near the fiddler all night and watch him. And then they'd walk home and the walk home might be four or five miles and it could take an hour or several hours. And by the time they got home, they had the tune because they didn't have a radio. <laughs> they had the tune in their, one of the tunes in their head. And then they'd go back the next week to the next dance and they'd get another one. Because life was... I'm not going to say it was simpler, but it was quieter. And, and people's brains responded to that. We, I can't do anything anymore unless it's on my computer. Lotus stored everything in his head. I got to go look it up. 
So that was part of the fascination for you, that they're almost different types of people, would you say? I've lived in it, grown up in it. I'm not time? sure that I was aware of it at the time, but you know, I, I became gradually aware. But yes, they, they, they just had a whole, they had lived through, you know, the Depression in World War II, and I was born right after World War II. They had lived through, some of them I knew had lived through the Roaring Twenties. One, one of their old musicians I first learned from was a concertina player, an old German guy, um, had gone to fight in World War I. And uh, when he left, he traded his really expensive, beautiful concertina, which was made here in Chicago. Uh, he traded it for a cheaper one, he traded the concertina, and in exchange for the, his expensive Pearl Queen, he got a cheaper concertina, uh, a bushel of wheat, and a pig <laughs> in, in his trade. But he said, yeah, I, I could use the bushel of wheat, and, uh, and my wife could, could, could use the pig, but I was going off to war. I didn't know if I'd ever get to use that concertina again. But thankfully, he came back and was still playing in his 80s when I, last time I saw him. You, you remember any songs of his specifically? I, I have a couple, but I'd have to look them up on my computer. <laughs> I can't so start So you weren't walking yeah, well, back four miles right. with a song in your head, the problem. Yeah. Well, how about maybe another song from Lotus that, that you were learning from, and then maybe bring up Steve and yeah. we could close out. The... Okay. Okay. Actually, I'm going to play you a tune from... Uh, from a guy from up in Michigan, his name was Les Raber. After Lotus died, I was really kind of lost, you know. And then I, I, I had met Les Raber before, and, uh, and then I started bringing him to do some events around Chicago, and I actually helped him get hired at the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes out in Port Townsend, Washington in 1998. And he was real nervous about that, but he went out there and did that. And a couple of years after that, he, he died. He was just shy of his 90th birthday. He passed away, and I went to his funeral in Michigan, and I met his daughter, and she'd never played a note in her life. And she said at the funeral, a whole all bunch of his young musician friends were there, and she said, you know what, I think I'm gonna take up the fiddle. This was in 1999. This year, this summer, coming up next month, the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes in Port Townsend, Washington, is having Judy Raber, Les's daughter, on their staff as a teacher. So in the, in the 17 years since her dad died, she's. I, I've never heard her play, but she's a Facebook friend, so I, we trade messages, but uh, I've never heard her play, but I guess she's gotten pretty good. <laughs> so here's a tune from Les Raber, and he got this from an old man. Here's another one of those. This, this old man's name was Lloyd Kilt. Well, he was the same age as Les, and Les said, oh, I got all these great tunes from Lloyd Kilt. He lived in Grand Rapids. So I called Lloyd Kilt's house, and his wife said, well, yeah, you can come see him, but he just went to the hospital. <laughs> so come back when he's out of the hospital. And once again, Lloyd never got out of the hospital. I did hear him play once. But here's a tune that uh, Les Raber from Hastings, Michigan got from Lloyd Kiltz of Grand Rapids, Michigan.
think that's uh, probably a two-step. That's what you dance for that. Steve, well, you want to come up? Steve? Yeah, Paula, thanks a lot for coming out here, and just it's been wonderful talking with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll, we'll go out with a few songs, uh, or whatever you feel like, a song or two. Let's do uh, this one's called Boats Up the River. It comes from Olabel Reed. Bye.
Change things up a little bit. Steve's gonna play some mandolin. I'm gonna play some guitar. We're gonna do a song that when I was doing my field recording for radio, I recorded a bluegrass band who was doing the ground round circuit. I don't know if anybody remembers the ground round restaurants, but they did them all. <laughs> and uh, they're a great band. They were called the uh, oh, they were called something. <laughs> I'll look it up on my computer. They were called the Johnsons because they were a bunch of Johnsons. Apparently. And and their guitar player was a guy named Jeff White who's gone on to fame. He he, he played the Old Town School a couple years back with Allison Krauss and part of her band. But they did this great country song in a bluegrass setting and I loved it right away when I heard it and uh, Steve and I have been doing it ever since. It's not very old time but it's Good time. Bye. 
mine again, my dear. I'm on a sea of tears, sea of heartbreak. Steve Rosen, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.